So I hope that maybe uh, my little bit of experience contributed to uh, that church being a good experience for you. Probably. (laughs) All this stuff adds up. Welcome to the Faith Without Fear podcast, a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Redlands, California. This podcast is hosted by Senior Pastor Sean Zambros and Associate Pastor Nick Quintz. In this episode, they are joined by Allison Quintz, a PhD student in Divinity at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, to talk about women, theology, and the church. So in light of uh, a famous, well, famous slash infamous pastor that's, what, an hour drive from here? Hour drive from Redlands? Hour and a half? At least. At least. Uh, Depends on the traffic. Yeah, that, I mean, if you take the 210, it's not terrible. But uh, in light of this pastor uh, who basically got something trending on Twitter, which usually takes a lot of work, uh, his comments on a certain someone saying she should go home, I figure talking about women in church ministry and leadership and why, as this church and as American Baptists, at least in principle, affirm women in ministry would be a really good topic. So just to provide a little bit of context, the pastor we're talking about is John MacArthur. Uh, at no, oh, that yes, John McCarthy. <laughs> uh, he was at a theology conference and he got asked some words, kind of one of those silly games, like describe what what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say X kind of thing. And the person asked him to use the words for said uh, Beth Moore, who's a just to provide a little more context, is a Bible teacher. She's basically a, a preacher in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, one she, of the most famous um, female preachers out there, I believe. And she's good. She's quite good. But. Preaching to women. Preaching yeah. to women, although I've learned quite a bit from what she has to say, which yeah, well, there are a few men who've snuck in. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so he and she's been making news because she's criticized the SBC for their lack of um, response to abuse and all that sort of stuff in the SBC and general sexism and racism and stuff like that. So even within her conservative con- uh, context, she's taking kind of a bit of a stand, is taking a lot of flack from it, as well we see. And so John MacArthur's response to the original question of Beth Moore is go home. And then he followed it up with lots of comments about why women should preach and why just because you can sell jewelry and all this sort of stuff, or basically implying that just because you're pretty doesn't mean you should be preaching the word of God. And so that... Like sell jewelry? Yeah. <laughs> and so all that, all that sort of stuff to say, um, I figure... And the, and the hashtag on Twitter became hashtag go home. And basically egalitarians like a lot of us decided that'd be a good thing to post and we basically took that hashtag and made it our own thing on Facebook so it's kind of cool so basically became a widespread movement in favor of women clergy which I thought was kind of cool kind of playing with it but um, I figured we have two highly educated awesome women of who are filled with the spirit I figured I'd sit in and ask a few questions and get things going and uh, what was your experience growing up in the church I mean were you raised in an egalitarian setting was there a little more you know, patriarchal stuff going on. What was your experience like growing up in the church? I would say in the church. Uh, so I, I started out in a lot of different churches when I was younger. Um, one of my earlier churches was in a Southern Baptist African-American church um, when I was very young. And then after that, we moved to an American Baptist church. Okay. And I would say uh, my experience was um, predominantly egalitarian, actually. In the SBC? Well, um, no, after ABC. After ABC, okay. Yeah. American it didn't Baptist. really come up for me much in the in the first church. Uh, maybe I was a bit young. Um, I just remember we didn't really have um, flannel graphs or any. We weren't told like little children's stories. We'd read read large volumes of scripture, which I liked. Um, <laughs> 
So I grew up knowing scripture pretty well and got good teaching too at the ABC church. Mm-hmm. And your dad was, is, was, is an ABC, was raised you in ABC, didn't he? Um, well, that was, yeah, after the, after the other church. So we were originally Catholic. So my very early memories was Catholic mass. I was extremely young. Um, my big complaint was that uh, the priest was the only one who got the grape grape juice, and I didn't even get the crackers. So, you know, I was happy. The for himself. I was happy to get the crackers later. Um, so I was baptized actually in the Southern Baptist Church, and uh, we yeah we eventually that was our experience of Protestantism and. Then ABC, we didn't really see it as um, rebelling against any former church background, I guess. So it was just a very natural transition. Well, for me, I grew up in a a small American Baptist church in northeast Los Angeles. And I was unaware of it being egalitarian or complementarian. I mean, I assume it was. Probably nobody thought of it. Um, Women did almost anything in the church except the pastor was man, a man and nobody ever thought I never ever thought of a man of, of a pastor being anything other than a man mm-hmm. when I was growing up and then uh, when I was in junior high uh, a bunch of us wanted to start a Bible study we became really very interested in our faith and a bunch of us wanted to start a Bible study we found a, a teacher at our school who was willing to teach the Bible study. And for about three years, this Bible study went on. And in the midst of that, uh, we began leaving our churches because, those of us who went to church, uh, because this man went to John MacArthur's church. And um, more and more, we were finding out all the things that were wrong with our churches. Mm -hmm. So one thing led to another. We ended up, uh, a bunch of us, going to John MacArthur's church. And so... For the most part, I went to John MacArthur's church pretty much just on Sunday, uh, uh, all through high school. Hmm. Then once in college, I uh, uh, got involved in InterVarsity and began to experience a lot of things that were different than what I had been taught at uh, John MacArthur's church. And so, I, in fact, I felt like I was in a group that was more alive spiritually than I'd ever experienced wow. before. Hmm. But in this group, there were women in leadership, there were charismatics and non-charismatics, there were mainline Protestants, there were Catholics, and uh, all these different people that I had learned in John MacArthur's church that really weren't Christians. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, so my experience was mixed, but uh, in high school, I really came to uh, believe because of that experience that uh, women were very limited in what they mm-hmm. could do in church. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until I became uh, I I left and in college and then had the experience yeah. of meeting two women ministers at an American Baptist conference, and that was sort of the beginning of my discovering that God called women, mm-hmm. and it was not overnight but that was sort of the beginning of me realizing that oh there were women there are women pastors Mm -hmm. and and the beginning of me experiencing a call to ministry so for the most part after that my experience has been egalitarian I think my experience was a little reversed because I was more or less um, oblivious 
that I was different in some way, um, in a hierarchical sense, um, growing up in church, mm-hmm. is once I got to uh, seminary, or I guess my undergrad at Biola, that I started to realize um, one thing was not like the others. Um, so, I mean, it, give you a little bit more insight into the ABC church that I spent a lot of my time at. My, I, I found out much later in life that um, someone who's been an informal mentor to me and an overt mentor to my dad, Lee McDonald, um, he really fought to have um, a woman be the associate pastor there. Um, she actually, Ruth Acosta, uh, married Nick and I. And so my experience, that I think that had an effect overall on me and just, I, I didn't, see anything abnormal there. It didn't occur to me. I was used to seeing women preaching, leading. I myself, um, I identified, grew up identifying with my dad, who was a pastor, and uh, Pastor Lee, as I knew uh, back then, also would encourage my questions quite a bit. So I was very much a why kid. I wanted to know why about everything. And they just taught me to, you know, look to the scripture, um, interpret it in context. And if they didn't know the answer to the question, they would say, a good that's a good question I don't know I don't yeah. know the answer um, so I I don't know I was always encouraged to think critically um, be involved in these uh, theological discussions um, and when I went to Biola went into I, I decided to be a Bible major and I was the only one in my intro class that was um, a woman and I didn't even notice actually um, I was completely oblivious um, and I noticed that uh, originally that for some reason no one was sitting next to me even though I was in the center I thought that was a little odd but I just figured we're all new and didn't think anything of it um (laughs) and sure enough someone uh, a good friend of mine later um, came and sat next to me um also actually one of the few minorities in the room and it was curious because um we were trying to figure out what we all had in common after that because we didn't know that we were all grouped according to major. And I was like, oh, we're all Bible majors. I'm like, huh, I must just so happen to be the only woman in the group. Just so happen. Yeah. So I, I really, a lot of my experience early at Biola was to think that all of these things were just coincidences. Like, because it just wasn't, it was so detached from my experience. Mm-hmm. So when I'd get like ignored, when I would say something, uh, I would just think, oh, well, that's just, coincidental you know yeah maybe I just didn't speak loud enough you know stuff like that right and you know after a while it stacks up you know and Mm -hmm. some of the comments were I'd say quite sexist but or you know sometimes humorously so but Mm -hmm. um well what's (laughs) interesting is that um we've got two generations here going on when I was in seminary I served at that church where Hmm. you grew up oh wow yeah and I was an intern, and I was doing junior high ministry. And the pastor there was Emmett Parks. Actually, was hired by, uh, or I worked for a year with the interim pastor, who was Paul Kopp. And then I follow, and then Emmett Parks came as pastor. Both of them were clearly egalitarian. That mm-hmm. was not an issue for them. They affirmed me in every aspect nice. of ministry. But when I asked if the church would license me. Mm. I, um, uh, Dr. Parks brought it to the deacon board, which was all male, mm. and uh, they were to vote, and then it would go to a vote of the church as to whether or not to license me. So he brought it, and he brought it up at the end of the meeting, thinking it was a, a slam dunk, mm. and it was not. Yeah. And uh, they started bringing up all sorts of questions, and so he realized that this was something that we were going to have to, Mm -hmm. they were going to have to deal with more deeply, and so he, uh, they tabled it, 
And a month later, they came back to talk about it. In the meantime, he and I talked, and he got all ready to do the scriptural argument. And when he got to the meeting, he and I was not there, so I only got it back from him. When he got to the meeting, they started talking about it again. None of the arguments were scriptural. All of the ar- arguments, the main argument that I remember was, does a woman, a woman doesn't have the physical stamina for ministry oh that a man has. <laughs> well, at the time I was doing junior high ministry, I was leading backpacking trips. Yeah. I was doing lock-ins <laughs> all night long. So I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of this board of... Not all old men, but a few <laughs> saying, you know, wanted to go, uh, hey, why don't you stay over at the next lock-in, you know. Yeah. Um, and not to even mention childbirth. So yeah. um, so anyway, I uh, that was he was just floored because he didn't expect those kinds of arguments. Yeah. Yeah. They took the vote, and it was, it was seven to five in favor. Okay. okay. But so, that was too close for me. Yeah. And so I decided at that point to leave and go back to my home church, mm-hmm. which had its own issues. But before going back, I asked them if they would license me. Uh, that was sort of part of the whole package. Mm-hmm. So I, nice. I took a significant pay cut, but I got more experience, a broader experience, and I got licensed nice. um, in, my, in my home church. But So I hope that maybe uh, my little bit of experience contributed to uh, that church being a good experience for you. Probably. <laughs> All this stuff adds up. It does. Um, and even like Lee McDonald really laid the groundwork with um, Pastor Ruth and um, he he didn't just, I guess, you know, just pick someone at random. He picked someone that's just highly qualified and went to bat for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't realize all the work he did behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, you know, I'm just experiencing as a kid, I, I had no clue that, you know, Ruth had faced all these, like, horrible obstacles, you mm-hmm. know. And it's, I don't mm-hmm. know, it's just very nice to hear <laughs> Because yeah. at least on paper, America, the American Baptist Churches USA are egalitarian yeah. on paper. Yeah. And that the question then becomes, well, what of the local church? And that's where the process gets more dicey, perhaps, is maybe the, the word for it. Uh, we've already mentioned it a little bit. I'd, I'd be really curious to get both your thoughts on what, was like, what it was like to be a, a woman in seminary. Uh, for me, it was a great experience, but of course, I'm not a woman and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Allison, you went to Fuller, Ted's. Well, yeah, so let's see. We've got Biola, um, Westminster, Philadelphia. Oh, yes. um, Yes. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and Fuller Seminary. And now you're doing your Ph.D. at Aberdeen. Yeah, University of Aberdeen. And by the way, there's a lot of women in my class there. (laughs) Just going to say. (laughs) And so, like, what was your experience like in in seminary, just broadly speaking, just as someone who's not even necessarily wanting to be a pastor, not even thinking about this as necessarily an issue, so to speak, and yeah. how did that all... Yeah, because I think the question should be rather than can women be pastors, maybe something more like should people be allowed to prohibit them from leading? Better question, but... Yeah, yeah so, yeah, my experience um, in seminary, though, um, I'd say mixed. I mean, I was I really enjoyed my time at Biola, for instance. Um, it was a time... I, I did randomly get into a lot of debates, actually on the biblical canon and church authority issues related to the... Um, biblical canon and um, Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism. And so I, I had a grand old time debating random people about anything and everything. And um, it really just um, learning a lot of the basics, I guess, of that are taken for granted in scholarship. And 
the thing is, there's, yeah, lots of other stuff sprinkled in. So I, there were a couple of people that apparently were a bit intimidated um, by me, and I thought that was a little odd. <laughs> and some of my um, guy friends um, spelled it out for me. It's, they said, it's because you're smart. They feel threatened. Um, one, one guy said, well, it's kind of like we're afraid that maybe women will stop, like, I don't know, making pie or something. Like, and I started laughing hysterically. I thought it was so funny, and, but it wasn't a joke, apparently. He got really serious. I, like, oh. I get my pie at Marie Callender's. <laughs> I can make a pie, but I don't know if I'm going to share it with you. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I don't know. It, it was, I had a great time overall. It was hard. I would say it was very difficult being at Westminster. Um, there was a lot more just bizarre reactions towards me even being in a MDiv program there, um, even though it wasn't their um, pastoral track. I don't know. I guess I would say the difficulty I've had overall in terms of just in terms of having to navigate all sorts of stipulations that suddenly appeared that I didn't have in my other context growing up. And that was just realizing that I had to navigate very carefully, not being, um, so I, you know, very, I can be very assertive um, naturally, but, you know, being, being careful because being assertive, even if you're very polite, um, might be considered aggressive or other things. And I also realized very fast um, that I was supposed to not have any emotion whatsoever, and so, and unfortunately, I had been struggling with other things where I needed to be better connected with my emotions. So this was bad for me. So I was just, I tended to be very flat. And I, I tend to be very factually oriented anyway, so that's good. But it was just kind of one of those things where it was a double standard where people could say a lot of offensive stuff to me. And I just had to be like, oh, well, that's interesting. X, Y, and Z. How do you respond to that? Oh, like pie. How about that? Pie. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I heard that you said pie. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep, you said it five times. I got it. You know, move on. And I, on the plus side, um, I tend to be pretty thick-skinned, so I'm not usually that bothered. You know, I hear I hear everything, so I don't know. It, it's a mixed bag. You know, mm-hmm. I have no... I have some really bizarre stories to tell, I can tell, but I don't know. I would say on the whole, it's not like I was traumatized by my experience in seminary or anything like that. It's just you take it as a fact of life. You know, that's just how things are. (laughs) Yeah, for me, I went to Fuller for my uh, MDiv, and then later on I went back for my DMIN. And uh, my MDiv experience was actually quite empowering Mm -hmm. because uh, though I had come to believe that God was calling me into ministry, I still wasn't allowing myself to think about being in pastoral ministry, I was thinking more like youth ministry or Christian education. And fortunately, the very first time I went to visit Fuller and I met with a, a an advisor, and, and the advisor was just, you know, like all the advisors there, they were older students. And he was older, meaning having been there longer. And it was a guy, and he said, so what do you want to do? I said, oh, well, I have Christian education or maybe youth ministry. He goes, oh, well, then you should be in the MDiv program. He could have easily said, oh, well, you don't need to get an MDiv, but he didn't. And so I said, oh, well, okay, if that's what I need, that's what I'll get. So I signed up for the MDiv program. My second year, I was a part of um, Roberta Hestinus's class called Women and Men in Ministry, and that was incredibly empowering empowering in so many different ways. I learned that I was oppressed, uh, which was an interesting dynamic uh, (laughs) 
having to get go through the anger and all of that of that and my poor husband living through that. But Oh, you shouldn't um, treat me that way. Huh. He was actually pretty pretty patient. Um, he was actually further along as far as being an egalitarian, egalitarian than I was. But anyway, so that was very empowering. The only experience that I had that was weird would be with students. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any trouble with, with professors mm-hmm. by any means, but but there would be some students that you could tell uh, kind of didn't know what to think. And when I yeah. went to Fuller, I was not engaged or married. And when I first got there, and I, the married men tended to be pretty accepting mm-hmm. of me in class. But the single men, I think, thought that women were only there to find a husband, which I, I was truly <laughs> you, not you interested. So you don't count. I was truly not interested in <laughs> finding one of them to be my husband. And <laughs> so... Um, Anyway, but that was very interesting. Once I got engaged uh, and mm-hmm. then married, I was suddenly safe. Oh, okay. And uh, it really felt different. Um, but that that was it. Now, in the yeah. DMIN program, it was a little bit different. Again, the professors were still very, they were very um, egalitarian, but sometimes my classmates weren't. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and by that time, it you know it was like, well, it doesn't matter what you think. As you know, I was pretty confident in what I was doing. So, it actually would turn out to be a pretty good experience. By the end of the two week classes that we would have, the uh, some of the men would express that maybe they they had a change of mind or mm. they might might be more open or something like that. That was a very interesting experience. But in those classes, um, classes of about 15 or 16, the first one I was the only woman. The uh, next two, there were two of us in each. So there, yeah. there, I got used to being the only woman or one of very yeah. few number of women in class. Yeah. I think I would say um, I, my experience at Fuller is where things started actually getting markedly different. In terms of my general experience, um, and I mean, I, I always just made friends um, wherever I went um, with mostly male peers because that's who was around, mm-hmm. uh, frankly. I mean, just you have common interests and you just get talking. Um, but at Fuller, it was interesting. Um, I, I would say I only had one, there was only one incident, which was, it's quite amazing um, in hindsight. And it's really how I think it got handled as opposed to other places I had been. So it was just one of those classic um, things where uh, a male student kept interrupting me constantly. and In the middle of uh, like, in like a class debate or something? It was one of those things where they were supposed to critique your work and um, give you the critique ahead of time. And he did not give me the critique ahead of time and pretended like he did. Mm. And then... So I had to, like, figure it out on the fly as he was talking, um, which wasn't a problem. But when I would respond, he kept interrupting me over and over again. And I didn't even notice. Like, there's a lot There's a lot of stuff I just don't notice anymore. Like, mm-hmm. it's just so usual. Um, but Joel Green was the, um, he's my mentor, and he's also the uh, person in charge of the, leading the class, stopped him and said, you do not interrupt. And there was and no more interruption. How about that? He's a very intimidating guy. Yeah. Like he's... Joel can be scary if he wants to be. Everyone knows this. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it was just kind of one of those things because there's, there's certain things where there's a lot of unwritten rules where if, you know, if I'm to do that, and sometimes you have to, you know, mm-hmm. but there's consequences once you call someone out on it. Right. And um, it was very nice. Um that I didn't have to deal with that, and I could just go on as usual. But I would say most of my interactions, like all my 
um, peers treated me as peers. Mm-hmm. And it was great. Like, um, it, 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 it really made me reevaluate my other um, years at the other places. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, um, University of Aberdeen's been wonderful as well. Um, tons of female peers, mm-hmm. the Ph.D. program, which I'm, I've been very excited about, actually. Yeah. It was interesting because when I was in Roberta Hestinus's class on women and men in ministry, uh, one of the days was just talking about practical things mm-hmm. about being a woman in ministry. And one of the things she said to us is the first thing we need to learn as women in ministry is to interrupt <laughs> because you will not, nobody's going to give you a chance to talk. And so even though we've been taught that it's impolite to interrupt, that women need to learn to interrupt because that's how men talk. And um, so that was one thing. Uh, and then another thing was, uh, back then this was before laptops and mm-hmm. everything else. And it's like, so don't, uh, when you come into a meeting, put your tablet under your chair. Don't have a piece of paper in front of you. Don't have a pen in front of you. If you need to pull up your tablet later on <laughs> or pull out your pen from your purse and take a note, then you can do that. But don't go into the meeting with your tablet on the table or you will be expected to be the one who takes minutes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the interesting thing about the interrupting thing, too. I mean, that's the advice given to women, but there's a reason women don't interrupt or normally interject because mm-hmm. again when we interject it's interrupting right you know and it's it's kind of marginalization 101 like i know if i go into a location that any person that's marginalized in that group you know immediately they're going to be identified as you know too loud um interrupting you know things that attack their mm-hmm. speech or sense of agency so yeah i don't know sometimes it's a tightrope because the thing is there can be like pretty bad consequences too mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a, a tightrope sometimes, I think, has to be played. Yeah, right. Well, and and uh, uh, I just read an article today, in fact, about um, the fact that on the Supreme Court hmm. that women, the women justices, are interrupted by the men hmm. by a, a great percentage yeah. more than the men interrupt other yeah. men. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I I was in a context, and I actually counted, because I, I knew how this worked. Like, I, mm-hmm. I know how marginalization works, and I saw it, I saw it ha- starting to happen to me, and I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to count how many times I'm interrupted, because they're going to tell me I'm interrupting sometime down the road. Yeah. Um, and I'm just interjecting agreements. So let's just see what happens. And mm-hmm. sure enough, I was like, well, do you realize, you know, I was interrupted, you know, seven times, and I interjected an agreement here, and now I'm being spoken to about interrupting. Mm-hmm. Didn't know what to do. Right. But, I mean, you know, it's kind of... Yeah. It's a, it's a no-win situation sometimes. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. Yeah, definitely. And so we, we've talked about uh, seminary and experience and all that sort of uh, stuff. What are some reasons why we here at this church and as a denomination and, and principle have come to the conviction that women can and indeed, I would argue, should serve in any capacity in which they are called to serve? I mean, our... I mean, we could obviously make extensive arguments and all that sort of stuff, but just kind of off the top of our heads, what are some convictions, uh, theological, biblical, what have you, of, of why we've arrived at this conclusion and, and supported as a church and all that sort of stuff? What are some reasons that come to mind? Because MacArthur, the first thought of someone who's a fan of MacArthur, hears us talking and having this conversation, but what about what the Bible says? Is MacArthur actually wrong? And we're like, 
Well, yes. <laughs> and by um, the Bible, they mean a select passage, certain yes. passage. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what, what are some reasons or convictions that, um, that we have arrived at that um, cause us to favor and support and affirm and encourage women in ministry? Well, I think historically as Baptists and even Southern Baptists, frankly, because we believe so strongly in the priesthood of all believers and we are, um, each church is, uh, we, we believe in local church autonomy, those lend themselves to the development of leadership among women and a, a theology that allows that to happen. The more hierarchical, it's kind of interesting because we think of the Episcopalians as being much more uh, progressive when it comes to women in ministry, but they were one of the last ones to ordain women, mm-hmm. um, and that's because they're hierarchical. And, and so uh, I think the fact that we are um, not hierarchical uh, as a rule, the Southern Baptists had 600 or around 600 ordained women at mm-hmm. the time that they took their fundamentalist swing in the what the 80s yeah. and those women actually found themselves in a place where they were in exile mm-hmm. and many of them became American Baptists and cooperative Baptists and some of the other Baptist groups but but for the most part I think historically that's why you can look back so far and see the ordination of women uh, uh, among Baptists and groups like Baptists that are not hierarchical. So that's a historical reason. Yeah, and I mean, like, biblically, we have so many examples of women leading um, and teaching in authoritative ways in the Bible. Um, Phoebe, Junia, even in the Old Testament, Deborah. And um, Nick and I, you know, do a whole, uh, you know, in-depth thing on each of them in this Split Frame of Reference podcast. But... I mean, there's just so many examples throughout Scripture of women leading. Um, There's other biblical principles um, that lend towards um, women being able to teach and lead in churches, and um, other, you know, also spiritual. A lot of churches are spiritually gift based, and again, you've got the Galatians three twenty eight passage. Um, and at the end of the day, a lot of us just don't agree that um, very particular passages, namely usually First Timothy and sometimes two, and sometimes they throw in First um, Corinthians fourteen, um, actually teach what they think it teaches. So we take a very broad brush approach to Scripture. So we look at um, lots of examples in Scripture, not just a few, and we also don't generally buy into the narrative on particular passages that are put forward. Yeah. And I think, uh, again, American Baptists have benefited from the lack of hierarchy, even when it comes to teaching. Yeah. So so there are more voices yeah. uh, saying, uh, looking at, uh, you know, there are more people looking at the scriptures and sharing uh, perspectives about what the scriptures, and I don't mean that in some kind of willy-nilly way. It's actually, we believe that the Holy Spirit is a work in that, and uh, that the Holy Spirit brings unity uh, in the diversity of voices. And so I think, again, that historically and, and even in terms of church structure, the lack of uh, hierarchy in the American Baptist churches and uh, churches like that. You would say, It would be the same in some of the more... Um, um, like Assemblies of God and, and Foursquare and some of those yeah. denominations that have had a lot more women in uh, preaching because they believe in the movement of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's when they become hierarchical that then uh, women start to find restrictions. 
Yeah, and I would say culturally in our country, we've been a lot more male leadership centered. So it's not mm-hmm. surprising um, that a lot of us are uh, male centered for you know surprise surprise for leadership. If you know you're by default, you have a lot of male leaders because mm-hmm. your culture has you know brought that about, and you're the ones that are interpreting scripture. Oh, surprise! You know you think that the Bible supports you continuing to be in power, right, you know? Right. So it's, I think it's not very surprising. And I, it's interesting that a lot of just the radical um, changes in the New Testament, like just the fact that, you know, Paul is naming women as his co-workers. Right. We, we just gloss over that. And then the ones that seem to be quite striking, like Junia being an apostle, oh, well, you know, suddenly we've got to start you know, looking very carefully, limiting, maybe this doesn't quite mean that. I know Paul uses apostle, you know, in a, you know, a of sense himself, for him, yeah. of himself and the 12. But you know what? Elsewhere, it can mean sent in other contexts outside of Pauline literature. So maybe we'll go with that one or, you know, yeah, maybe we'll find some odd grammatical rule that we don't really know right. of anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. And the so. word means minister for Timothy, but it means servant for Phoebe. Yeah, yeah. Same word, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it's just like, okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, and, and he, MacArthur brought up a really interesting point, and I think this is where kind of the crux of the matter is for a lot of our, uh, at least my complementarian friends, is what do you do with Eve? Because Eve is kind of viewed by them as kind of the, the archety- archetypal woman who was deceived and was all these sorts of things, you know, and just... Somehow, because she represents all women and Adam represents all men, men can still be pastors, but women can't because the typology and stuff. And so there's this kind of idea that um, I'll I'll use MacArthur's comment as an example. Uh, I thought this was illustrating, uh, to be polite about it. Um, uh, So I'm reading from him. Eve got out from the protection of Adam. She was vulnerable. She was deceived. Of course, my first thought is... He's thinking. He's thinking. Gen- he's basically taking Genesis and Timothy and slapping them. Well, even then, it's kind of the new biased version. There's uh, he's, there's quite a bit like inserted here. Out from a protection of Adam doesn't say that anywhere. She was vulnerable. Yeah, I'd say the Bible said they were both vulnerable. Like they were naked and ashamed before God came over to bail them out again. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> then yeah, and it continues. <laughs> he that is Adam sinned because he couldn't live without her. Uh, Thank you, Augustine. Yeah. Uh, she beca- she had become everything to him, so, okay, already making her the problem. Sounds pretty romantic, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, it sounds like he's... <laughs> Romanticizing actually, sin. Great the, job. The first thing I noticed was she had become everything to him. That almost sounds like he's just echoing, Adam, you gave me this woman, it's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Don't do that. That's like, that was the bad thing. Yeah, that's, that was the bad. Yeah. And he says, when the roles were, are reversed, the women are deceived, bad things happen, the men are made weak, worse things happen. So it's a hermeneutical spiral into chaos. And the whole human race went down with Adam, basically. And so it's one of those where somehow, because the whole human race went down with Adam, we still ordain men, which I, I, I don't know if you all, you all saw that. It was the 10 reasons why we shouldn't ordain men was Adam sinned. <laughs> and if we're going to take this logic and be consistent with it, no man should be ordained. I should be here at this table because I'm in Adam and I'm sin. But his grave sin was not trying to, you know, seek wisdom for himself or to put himself above God. It was really that he wanted his wife to be able to lead. Yep. That was that was the original sin, it looks like. Well, either that or he, uh, his original uh, was sin, which is actually quite... Um, you know, you can kind of be uh, a little bit, um, well, anyway, if his original sin is 
that he that his wife had become everything to mm-hmm. him, you know, and that he hated to see her uh, left behind or kicked out, and he's, you know, without her and everything, <laughs> so he decides to go with her. You know, I mean, um, you know, he sounds so... Uh, heroic, almost. Yeah, heroic, exactly. Mm. Yeah, the whole human race went down with Adam. You temper, or you tamper with this order, chaos is unending. Mm-hmm. <gasps> yeah, so I think, yeah, I mean, easy responses, there's so much read into here. Uh, where does it say that? Um, nowhere. And I mean, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's what does Genesis say? And it says that God made them both to rule together. Yeah. Both image God together, both have authority over creation. And they both, um, in a sense, lost their place and got ruled over um, because they both sinned, ruled over by the creation that they were meant to serve and rule. So... And so it's just one of those things where I think it's just as a good hermeneutical rule, taking two passages that are related but kind of slapping them together like Plato and going, see, I've made something here. Just when I look at this sort of language, and it's not really argumentation, it's more just kind of assertion piled on top of assertion, just keeps going and going and going. I just kind of look at it and go, this is just not a careful way of reading scripture. This is... There's so, and basically, when I don't see someone explain their methodology or their assumptions of what they bring to the text, um, like for example, if I were to ask John MacArthur, if you changed your mind, would you still be able to pastor at that church? And if he says, you know, and, that, and that's you know, that's something we need to take into account here. Are you permitted by your denomination or your church or your what have you to change your mind or to have that sort of freedom to think? You know, and that's something we we value here at our church, and um, it's one of those I just find that. Just thinking methodologically for a second, I just find that to be really interesting. Just asking yeah. those sorts of questions. But just looking at this, my first thought is, <laughs> like, I yeah. don't know about you, but the men weren't the ones who took down the king by driving a tent spike through his head. That was a woman. <laughs> like, thank you, jail. Like, I don't know. It's one of those things where it just doesn't make any sense to me. I see strong women all over the Bible that do pretty awesome and cool yeah. things. Sometimes it's how it's interpre- or translated, like in the case of First Timothy. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, and again, we've uh, Nick and I have covered this in more detail before, but um, in, in that one, even, there's a lot of odd grammar at work, too. So sometimes, depending on your translation, it can sound very strange. Um, so my, my take on the First Timothy um, example of Eve is that Eve is being used as kind of a, an example or a type of deception. Um, especially since Paul um, earlier likened himself to being ignorant. Um, and he's talking about the wider, I guess, false or different ter- ter- church leaders um, that are um, going into this uh, false teaching. Um, he describes them as also deceived and in need of a savior. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of how he's using Eve in that context. And, of course, elsewhere he uses Adam, um, Christ, uh, ch- as an example, um, so I don't know. It's it's interesting um, that suddenly it seems like one component is taken out here by MacArthur, the deception aspect, and made to be kind of proof that all women everywhere, you know, are shouldn't be given leadership, and that chaos ensues. Mm-hmm. Um, when Paul's point in First Timothy, for instance, is that basically there's hope for everyone, even the the false teachers that are deceived, just as he was, um, and there's the hope of gospel, the gospel for everyone, and 
it's just it's 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 fascinating that somehow we've twisted this to mean well, something else. Doesn't Paul elsewhere compare the whole church as being deceived and using yeah Eve for as an Eve? Example? Yeah, so even men are deceived in Eve. Yeah, Second uh, Corinthians eleven, I yeah. believe. So yeah, it's too. like deception's not a. I don't know how deception became a quote female trait. Yeah, as if there's some sort of like even the whole church is elsewhere called deceived, and that includes men. Like that deception's all over the place in the Pauline epistles. Yeah, it's one of those interesting things where whenever Adam and Christ are being compared, um, Adam can be stand in for all humanity, but once it's um, I, I think Christ and Eve being compared, it's Eve is only typed for women, and it tends to be in a very oh that happens way. everywhere. Yeah. Don't you know? <laughs> there was a conference. Uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I think, that was put together by um, uh, Rachel Held Evans. And all of the speakers happened to be women. I'm sure it was intentional, but they were all women. And people then began to say, well, this must be a women's conference. Mm-hmm. Well, why would you say that? Well, because all the speakers are women. Well, have do women go to <laughs> conferences where all the speakers are men? All the time. Yeah. And is that an all? Is that supposed to be a men's conference? Well, no. But so then, why would you say that if all the speakers are women? So yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's like a story yeah, of my life. It's yep. a story. Yeah, yeah, it's a story of how things are. And so, building on that, MacArthur kind of continued to shovel and dig himself into a further hole. He said, "Quote: Women pastors and women preachers. I don't know why there's a distinction there. Are the most obvious evidence of churches rebelling against the Bible." Women who pastor and women who preach in the church are a disgrace and openly reflect opposition to the clear command of the word of God. This is flagrant disobedience. <laughs> you know, I love it when he just nuances his words to be so palatable and helpful and yeah. just calm. Yeah, I, I'd like to just, uh, again, just bring something into here because here's what else was considered, you know, evidence that um, the denomination's moving away from um, being Bible-centered. Um, he mentioned that... Um, Basically, Latino. They wanted Latino, African American, um, and oh, a woman to serve Baptist on the tra- yeah, yeah the translation Baptist. committees. So, yeah. okay. So when we have a translation committee, maybe we should have people with other perspectives that differ from our own, like a woman, someone that's Latino, African American. His response was translation of the Bible. How about someone who knows Greek and Hebrew? Well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Like already assumptions at work. Like. I think most people would assume if you're a translation committee looking for people to be on it, that that's a given. But he's automatically assumed that because they're women and minorities, that they don't know Greek or Hebrew mm-hmm. and that they're unqualified. Like I said, keep digging. Where, where's that in scripture? You know, that when you see, um, I don't know, a Latina or African-American, that they, are, they must be unqualified. To be on your translation committee, so like his first thought isn't that they're qualified; it's that they're they are not qualified. Yeah, yeah, and I think most of us would have assumed otherwise. You know that they would know that was a given. Greek. Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't for him. Yeah. yeah, but for for John MacArthur, what what people keep calling him an evangelical, and he's not an evangelical. He is a fundamentalist. He's always been a fundamentalist. He's never been an evangelical. Fuller is an example of what evangelicalism is, and some of the, even the schools that you went to yeah. that maybe are, so evangelicals may be egalitarian or they may be complementarian, yeah. but there's a difference yeah. between the evangelicals. For one thing, the tent is wider. Yeah. For a fundamentalist like John MacArthur, 
there's the, the tent is pretty small. Yeah. And um, for him, he has a very literal, like there is only, here's the Greek word, there's only one translated word for it. You know, I mean. He messes being, up the Greek quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, this idea of, well, they just need to know Greek. They don't have to bring any cultural or any other perspective because he doesn't have a very clear understanding of what biblical or what language translation even no. is all about. Yeah. And and, um, or the and the subtleties and the new, nuances and the cultural and all of those dynamics. And yeah. There's lack of self-awareness, really. It's this idea of I don't bring any of my culture with me. Right. Uh, my culture just so happens to be very patriarchal and narrow, and that's what I find in Scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine that, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's kind of... And I, I find the people that are, I don't know, tend to be some of the best um, interpreters tend to be very knowledgeable of where they're coming from. Um, yeah. And so they're able to also see that where the Bible's coming from, because right. the Bible will, tra- will will challenge, you know, where we're coming from quite frequently. Well, and it is very interesting, too, that he talks about that this is the most flagrant or the most obvious evidence <laughs> of churches rebelling against the Bible. Yes. And has, you know, we, nothing like prosperity, you know, theology or, you know, which, you know, or. Um, I think he I think he said something about I think prosperity was like thrown in there somewhere. Yeah, but so he would agree, but he's like, yeah, but you know that's you know that's not nearly as bad as, as it's yeah, not the most uh, the most obvious evidence of yeah. churches rebelling against the Bible. And he wasn't so keen on Me Too, mm-hmm. the Me Too movement either. Oh, of course not. Yeah, um, and so sexual abuse being exposed in I don't know his denomination not not up there in terms of. Um, open opposition to the clear command of the word of God. Like, right. you know, all those troublemakers, they're just, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It's like, yikes. Well, I would say that's a little bit more flagrant disobedience, but yeah, that, that's just me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Faith Without Fear podcast, a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Redlands, California. Music was composed and written by Garrett Sambros. If you're looking for a church home, we encourage you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1015. All are welcome.